morning, everyone. These are the people who were smart enough to blow out their driveway yesterday and not dealing with a double load of snow in the morning, right? <laughs> or, you, yeah, or you drive downhill, one or the other. As long as you're going downhill, you can get, you can get out. Well, we're starting the series on Galatians, and so if you want to turn in your Bible to Galatians chapter 1, and uh, we're going to work through this book. I, I don't know how long it'll take. We're just going to kind of go through it at whatever speed uh, is required. And the book of Galatians, written by the Apostle Paul to uh, the churches in the area of Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, if you want to think of it that way. And uh, these are largely what we would think of as European people. Um, uh, you know, the area of Rome called the area Gaul, uh, which is the area of France and part of Germany, sort of. And so these are Galatians. These are immigrants from that area, typically, and uh, and also the natives that live there. So these are all sort of what we think of as European people. They're not Jewish people. There's some. It's just a, a sort of cosmopolitan group of churches and people. And uh, Paul is writing to this area shortly after he had been there and is, is writing to the churches in that area that he had planted. And the book of Galatians is largely about the gospel. It's about the good news of Jesus Christ, and it's about clarifying the gospel because, as we as we as you will see, um, the churches in Galatia, uh, some people crept in there and started to alter the gospel as the Apostle Paul had presented it, and it was leading people astray and, and causing problems within the churches. And so Galatians is about clarifying the gospel. And the the thing that we keep in mind is that when the gospel is preached or the good news of Jesus Christ is preached, powerful things happen. And sometimes the powerful things are immediately visible uh, in terms of the transformation in a person's life or the transformation of a church or a city. And sometimes, as the gospel is proclaimed, these powerful things happen more slowly. But, but the gospel is always accomplished by or accompanied by powerful things happening. And the gospel is the good news about what Jesus did and about what Jesus told the disciples to proclaim. Okay, So the, the good news of Jesus is the power by which people are rescued from darkness into light. The gospel is how the church grew among Jews and Gentiles. It was the disciples going forth and just telling the story of who Jesus was and what he did, which is the gospel which caused the church to grow. And Peter and, and his people preached the gospel to the Jews, and Paul and his followers preached it to the Gentiles. And from the gospel, God built his church. It was the power of the gospel. And 2,000 years later, God is still building his church by the same means. One way is by the gospel, by the good news of who Jesus is and what he did. You tell people about Jesus... You let the Holy Spirit work in their hearts and then you baptize that brother or sister because they've made a decision for the Lord and then you rejoice along with heaven that they've come into the church and into the kingdom of heaven and then you go and you get another one while you train up that one. That's the church. That's what we've been doing for 2,000 years. You proclaim Jesus, you baptize them, you train them up, you go get another one. That's kingdom work. It's the gospel that sets people free. It sets us free from our selfish flesh. It sets us free from the empty things of this world. The gospel, when it's received by someone, does this amazing, transformative, life-changing thing. It sets us free from struggling to produce our own righteousness. 
It sets us free from having to qualify ourselves somehow by our own goodness, and instead it qualifies us by the goodness of Jesus and what he has done, which is amazing. But even more amazing, the gospel does this in a way so much differently than the law and different than religion. It doesn't do us by lecturing us on things that we should be doing or not doing, which we really don't enjoy prior to the gospel because they're contrary to our flesh. The gospel doesn't do that. It doesn't do it by lecturing. What the gospel does is it does it by transforming us and giving us a new affection and a new enjoyment for the same things that God enjoys. And so that we do see life transformation and we do see new behaviors, but they come out of a response of an affection for God and what he has done rather than just a list of rules that we have to bear down and follow. And so the gospel goes out and it transforms the hearer who receives it. Now, one of the things that we learn in Scripture is that even though the gospel is powerful to transform, it's only powerful in its true form. And this is what's important about the book of Galatians and what we're going to talk about this morning. It's not like a Tylenol pill that you can cut in half or mix with a placebo and figure that, you know, it'll work half as good. Half a gospel does not work half as well. Half a gospel is useless. And it's not like maybe having a briefcase full of $100 bills that you think is going to you know, pay off all your debts and secure your future and take care of your happiness, but in fact you suddenly discover that all of those $100 bills you thought you had in that briefcase are counterfeit. And now all of that money, it's not worth a million dollars. It's not worth $100,000. It's not worth $10,000. It's not even worth 100 bucks. In fact, that million dollars you thought you had is worth less than nothing because you're probably going to go to jail for having it. Right? And that's how the gospel is. Half a gospel does not accomplish half as much. And a counterfeit gospel does nothing. The gospel has to be the whole gospel in its purest form. And this is what Paul is fighting for in the letter to the Galatians because they have a part of a gospel or a counterfeit gospel which is doing them harm. And as powerful as the gospel is, it can be distorted. The gospel itself will never, ever die away in the world. It will always be doing its redeeming work among millions and millions of people. But careless or thoughtless or selfish or even deliberately wicked people can invent a counterfeit gospel. And false gospels that are powerless to save you and in fact will condemn you if, if it's not replaced or corrected. And that's what Paul's facing in this letter to the churches he planted in Galatia. He, he planted the church with a true gospel, and he'd seen the miraculous transforming power of that gospel, but now he discovers that a false gospel is creeping in and threatening to destroy. And so we must know the real, powerful gospel and accept no substitutes in our church. So let's read Galatians 1, 1 to 12, and I'll just pray quickly before we... Open God's word. Father God, we ask as we look into your word that by your Holy Spirit you would open our minds and our hearts to understand it, that we would perceive what it is that you would teach us here. And that it would really be about us individually, not just even us as a church, but us sitting individually in our own hearts, that we understand the gospel that we believe and that we allow by your Holy Spirit for you to examine us and to purify your gospel in our hearts so that we are not accepting any counterfeit gospel that perhaps even we've invented or that we've heard somewhere else or that we just want to believe because we like it better. 
but it's the true gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Galatians 1, 1 to 12. Paul, an apostle, there's who's writing it. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. So Paul is an apostle, and he makes clear, he says, I'm not an apostle by men or through men. It's not some bunch of guys in a committee who got together and made me an apostle. I'm an apostle through Jesus Christ. So this message that's coming to you now as I write this letter, it's not a message from a bunch of people or men. It's a message from Jesus. And it's to these churches in Galatia. And then he goes into sort of his own little summary of the gospel there, which he's going to get into in more detail in verses 3 and 4. But he goes on to say that he's astonished that so quickly they had deserted. And and this is probably one of the first letters that we have of Paul. He may have written other ones, but in terms of scriptural letters and epistles, this is probably the first epistle that Paul wrote. It's uh, written to a set of churches after planting them. And uh, we see in this letter, you actually kind of see a unique Paul here uh, in the sense that the, the introduction is a little bit different. He doesn't have his normal prayer that follows his introduction. And, and some people think that's because he's so concerned about the issue that he wants to jump right into it. And, and that might be it. I, I think because it's one of his first letters, he just hasn't really gotten into his pattern of letter writing yet. And uh, later on, he sort of gets a pattern that he follows and he doesn't have that yet. And you, and you also sort of meet uh, a very unusually, well, not unusually, but a but he's got a little bit of an edge in this letter, right? Like, like this is edgy Paul. This is early in his ministry, and uh, God doesn't necessarily round it off all the rough edges, uh, you know, to to the point that Paul, uh, event, you know, calls out Peter at one point in this letter, and and uh, you know, kind of throws him under the bus for the way he behaved, and then later on he wishes that these people that were corrupting the gospel in Galatia would emasculate themselves, and uh, so you got an edgy Paul in this letter, okay? And uh, we'll, we'll get to that later on. But here he's astonished at how quickly these people have deserted the gospel. And notice it says that you've deserted him. He doesn't say you deserted it. You haven't deserted a message. You haven't deserted an it of the gospel. You've deserted him. You've deserted Jesus is what he's saying. And that's important to remember that the gospel is Jesus. It's not just a philosophy. It's not just a worldview. It's not just a thing. The gospel is Jesus Christ. And Paul says how quickly you've deserted him. And he says, you've got a different gospel, or now a distorted gospel. Not that there really is another one. But for sake of argument, let's say that what you have has become distorted. And he says, 
I wish that person was accursed. Even if an angel came to tell you something different than the true gospel, let them be accursed. He's serious, and he's edgy, and he's angry about what's going on. And he just says, I received it not from man, but as a revelation. And so Paul just wants to continually emphasize that this is God's gospel. This is not a message from a man, but a message from God. And there's many false gospels that we can consider. And so this morning, what I want to do is just put that out here. Is if Paul is dealing with false gospels, what are the false gospels that Paul's dealing with? And also, what are the false gospels that we deal with in our age? And specifically, Paul is dealing with uh, the first false gospel, which is Jesus plus something. He's dealing with people that in Galatia are called the Judaizers. And it's, it's, it's the fact that there's Jesus plus there's something else. You have to add something to the gospel, religion or works or achievement. And this is what Paul is dealing with specifically in Galatia. That the justifying or qualifying of us has to be accomplished by something that we do. That we're expected to produce works in order to satisfy God. And in chapters 3 and 5, Paul will get into this sort of Jesus plus gospel in more detail. And we'll look at it then. But he's dealing primarily with the works of the law. With circumcision and feast days and uh, perhaps even temple sacrifices. Whatever it is, Paul's dealing with the idea that Jesus was not enough. You had to also add the law of the prophets. You had to continue to behave as a Jew alongside of Jesus. And so this is the gospel that is heard, and we just don't think that it can be true. It's too good to be true. The the free grace of God bestowed on us seems way too easy, and so in in a Jesus-plus gospel, we kind of move in or step in to help God out with our justification. Because it's too easy. It can't be good enough. Jesus Jesus can't be enough, and so I'm going to add things to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and by adding those things, then I'll be able to help God save me. And that kind of gospel is exhausting. It doesn't work, because, because we can't add to our salvation. We can't add to our justification. It doesn't work because we can't do anything for God. We only get counted as righteous because Jesus could do what we couldn't do. And Jesus is now our mediator between us and God. And if we try and do our own thing in order to build up our own righteousness or build up our own justification, then we're sort of pushing Jesus off to one side and saying, hey God, look at what I've been doing too. I mean, what Jesus did was great and everything, but look at all the stuff I'm doing. Right? I'm going to get some points in heaven, right? Because... You know, you're going to be able to accept me because I've been to church on Sunday and uh, I've done all these things that you've told me to do and I'm keeping a good devotional time and I'm reading my Bible and I'm working in Sunday school, which you should do, okay? Those are good things, but they do not contribute to your justification. You cannot say to God, like, Jesus is great, but look at me too. Our justification, our qualification, our salvation is entirely on Jesus alone. It's not Jesus plus everything. Now there's activities and there's spiritual disciplines and there are ways in which we walk as Christians that are important. There are old ways of the flesh that we set down and we stop doing and there's new ways of the Spirit that we pick up. I don't want you to hear me say that there isn't a right response to the Gospel that people should see in your life, that they should see differences and transformation in you. There is. But those things are in responses out of affection. They're not works that earn us a righteous standing with God. 
You can't add anything to Jesus and still have the gospel. It's not Jesus plus the church. It's not Jesus plus daily devotions. It's not Jesus plus membership. It's not Jesus plus donating money to a televangelist. It's not Jesus plus serving in ministry. It's not Jesus plus erasing old tattoos. It's not Jesus plus throwing out all your rock music. It's not Jesus plus any of those things. It's just Jesus has done what you cannot do. And we rest that we are qualified and justified and saved because of Jesus. God will call you to a new life. Trust me, he will. But the gospel is that salvation comes by trusting that Jesus has already done everything and that God is good on his promise that what Jesus has done is enough. So that's the Jesus plus, trying to add anything to Jesus for your own salvation or justification. The second big category of false gospels is just the opposite. It's Jesus minus, right? It's Jesus without any confession or repentance or discipleship or transformation. You can come to church the way you have, perhaps maybe since you were a little boy or a little girl, and you can listen to the pastor say some interesting things from the Bible, and you can feel good about Jesus and glad that you have some sort of fire insurance against hell. And then go home and there's no passion. There is no change. There's no transformation. There's no affection. There's no cherishing of Jesus and his word. There's no prayer with Jesus until you want something. And there's no proper sense of godly guilt when you just carry on the same old habits and continue to act selfishly. In short, there's no confession. There's no repentance. There's no transformation or discipleship. It's Jesus minus anything else that's supposed to come with him. And this shows up typically as sort of a family or cultural Christianity or an intellectual ascent Christianity. It's just, yeah, my parents are Christians, I'm in a Christian nation, I am go to church or I'm a Christian. But James writes in chapter 2, and he sort of gives the other side of the warning to complement Paul's warning of Jesus plus. James gives the Jesus minus warning. He says, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? And by deeds there, James is talking about that transformative life. A person who has come to Jesus and then is transformed so that his old life is gone and a new has come. And we're going to talk more about that next week. The perversion of this gospel is that God would say to his children, or would be the type of father who would say, just do whatever you want. You're my kids, but behave as destructively as you want to. There's no repercussions. I'm not going to teach you. I'm not going to shape you. I'm not going to transform you. Just follow any temptation, any appetite of your flesh that you want, and it'll all be fine. How wicked of a parent would that be? To just let your children destroy themselves without any expectation or assistance in transformation. And that's not the God of our gospel. The God of our gospel loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us the way we are, right? He's a good, good father, and he gives us the Holy Spirit so that we do not destroy ourselves, but so that we can actually be transformed and learn to live a life that is pleasing and also joyful for him. That gospel of Jesus minus any sort of responsibility, any sort of confession, any sort of repentance, any sort of transformation in your heart and mind, Jesus minus any of that is not the gospel. The gospel is not Jesus plus our own works, and it's not Jesus minus repentance and transformation. 
And now quickly, I want to cut. Those are sort of the big categories of, of false gospels. And I want to cover a few, sol- some subcategories of these false gospels. Because there's a lot of gospels going around in our day and age that I think are easy for us to fall into. And, and maybe some of you have fallen into these. And maybe in the back of your mind, there's a, there's a piece of these gospels that sort of appeal to you and, and you're wondering about. One of them, the way that it shows up today is universalism. Everybody gets to heaven. Right? This is the gospel of Jesus minus, um, uh, people transforming, right? It says, look, the Bible said God is love and I'm basically going to stop reading now, right? Like I, I read it in the Bible that God is love and I'm not going to read anymore because I'm happy with that. A loving God doesn't have a hell or if God whose love does have a hell, it's empty or if it's, uh, you know, not really as bad, it's only maybe people like Hitler and the Unabomber are in there. But, you know, nice people, you know, who go to church and are pretty well behaved, they're not in hell. So what's my good news? My good news is that God is going to take me and everyone else who's mostly nice, even if we ignore him. That's not the gospel. Everybody gets a free pass isn't anywhere in Scripture. Ephesians 2, 1-3 says, And you were dead in the trespasses of sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, there is no universalism in Scripture. Everybody doesn't just get to heaven because God is love. God is love, but God is also just. Right? There is sin, and it would be unjust for sin to go unpunished. And so it has to be dealt with somehow. And so there's a false gospel out there that a lot of people believe right now that just everybody gets to heaven. Because God wouldn't be God if he punished anybody. And that's a false gospel. That's a false good news. That's a false hope. If your hope is just you're going to get accepted anyway... It's not the gospel. There's another one that's sort of similar to it. It's annihilationism. right? It's similar to universalism. Some people put their hope in this. That their good news is, okay, I get it. There's no free pass. Everybody doesn't get to heaven. But I still don't believe that there's a hell. If I die somehow, whether there's a God or even whether there isn't, we just disappear. right? We just He will annihilate the wicked. At some point, we just cease to exist. And so I die and I disappear. And there might be an unpleasant judgment where you know, I feel bad because you know, God scolds me for being such a bad person. But in the end, I just disappear. And that sounds good. And so I'll risk living my life the way I want now simply because I believe in the end, I disappear anyway. But Matthew 13, 49-50 says, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So whatever you want to argue about the biblical depictions of hell, whether it's literal fire or allegorical fire or or whatever it is, the result is the same. Something really horrible that's comparable to being on fire with weeping and the grinding of teeth in regret and remorse. And how long an imprisonment for sinning against a perfectly holy God is justified? Is a hundred years of that enough? A thousand years of that? Ten thousand years? Is that enough? for sinning willfully against a holy God? How long would anyone want to be weeping and regretting the loss of God in a situation, literal or allegorical, that feels like being on fire? 
Annihilationism is basically atheism's gospel, right? This is the good news that atheists believe in, that in the end, there's just nothing. That's their hope. That's their gospel. And so annihilationism is no gospel at all. And then there's a third one, different than those two, the prosperity gospel or the functional Jesus. And and the prosperity gospel shows up in all over the world, but in North America and in areas of great season, like wherever there's a lot of rich people or a lot of poor people is where the prosperity gospel shows up. And this is the, the good news that health and financial blessing follows faith and it's coupled with a focus on personal empowerment and claiming the blessings of God by naming the name of Jesus or claiming them in the blood of Jesus or in the spirit of Jesus. And you have a tradition of people here in terms of Jimmy Swaggart and Oral Roberts and Joel Osteen and Creeflo Dollar and people like that. And, and they, 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 they teach this gospel that somehow there's a material blessing to following God now and that he desires that his children be sort of materially blessed. But that is not that God doesn't desire good things for his children, but God knows that material blessings are not always necessarily the good thing that his children need. Just follow up on some of the lives of people who have won the lottery and what has happened to them after they get their $10 million check and how it absolutely destroys their family and themselves. You may think that God giving you a bunch of money or giving you everything that you want is the best thing for your life, but it's not. Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man have no place to rest his head. Joel Osteen doesn't preach on that very often. Right? And he also said, Leave your family and don't put your hand to something and then look back. And he said, They persecuted me and they will persecute you and the servant is not above his master. Right? These are verses that don't come up a lot in prosperity gospel sermons. Right? The prosperity gospel doesn't exist in the form that it's preached in Scripture. In scripture. That's not to say that every Christian is in for a life of misery. No, the, the Christian life is filled with unexplainable joy because there's joy and happiness and hope in spite of illness or poverty or persecution. Joel Osteen, like, I think his bestseller was called Your Best Life Now. I hope not. Because if this life is my best life, that means I'm going to hell. This life is as bad as my life is going to be. This life I experience right now is the worst possible life I could live. It's only going to get eternally better. So Joel, you can have your best life now. I want my best life later. It's just wrong to think the way these prosperity gospel preachers think and preach. God is interested in your eternal life, and he'll use this life to get you there. Don't resist him while he's doing it. Fourthly, therapeutic deism. That's a fancy term, therapeutic deism, but it's basically uh, a broader sense of the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel is kind of a widespread and popular form of this general false gospel of therapeutic deism that God sent Jesus for our therapeutic benefit. And, And these gospels preach to our own sort of invented version of Jesus. Jesus is the bestower of whatever it is that we think our greatest need is. He isn't the Jesus of scripture, but he's the Jesus we invent. And there's a writer, Daniel Darling, and he gives a summary of ten therapeutic Jesuses 
in his book, The Original Jesus. And I've printed all ten of them there in your insert, and uh, you've probably been reading through them as I've lost your attention. And, uh, but that's fine. And, uh, but you can take those home and you can look at those. I'm just going to touch on three or four of them here. I'm not going to go through all ten. Uh, but this idea that we create a therapeutic Jesus that serves our need, and the first one there is kind of guru Jesus, right? He's, he's the wise and winsome and slightly mystical figure who, who fits alongside other religious beliefs like Buddha and Muhammad. And it's a safe Jesus, right? He, you know, Guru Jesus only tells us encouraging things and, and, and pearls of wisdom that get us through our day, and he doesn't bother us with any sort of dangerous talk of the kingdom of God and having to transform and follow him and pick up our cross. That's Guru Jesus, and, and maybe some of us like to worship and serve Guru Jesus. And then there's red-letter Jesus, right? This is uh, sort of a Christian version of Jesus where we just like to think about the things that Jesus said in the Gospels, the things that were written in the red letters, uh, because, you know, that's really the most important thing is that we follow what Jesus himself said. And I would argue that red-letter Christians, as you listen to them talk, actually don't follow all of the red letters. They just like the red letters that sound like Guru Jesus. But the reality is when you listen to Jesus talk about Scripture, and where Scripture comes from, and who He is, you realize that actually all of Scripture should be written in red letters. Jesus wrote it all. He doesn't give us a free pass to say, you only have to listen to the Sermon on the Mount and you're good. He says, I didn't come to dispose of the law, but to fulfill the law. And He speaks of an unbreakable Scripture that not one iota or jot can be changed. And then you've got, of course, a good cultural one here, Braveheart Jesus, right? This Jesus has come to help men recover their masculinity. You know, he's a John Wayne Jesus. He's into big game hunting. And, 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 it's a, and this Jesus is kind of a cultural response to a crisis that we see in our society to what is masculinity? What does it mean to be a man in our culture today? And so we've created sort of Braveheart Jesus in the church as a hyper-masculine construct for men to follow after, but in fact, Jesus and God want men to be servant leaders in their home and in the church and in the community. And then there's American Jesus and left-wing Jesus and Dr. Phil Jesus, he's a good one, and prosperity Jesus and post-church Jesus. A BFF Jesus is a good one, best friend forever Jesus. Right? BFF Jesus actually hints at the truth of the Christ of Scriptures. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus is our friend. But BFF Jesus, as he shows up in some of our modern choruses, he sounds less like a righteous ruler of revelation and, as Daniel says here, more like Taylor Swift's boyfriend. (laughs) You know, BFF Jesus fits well within our culture of narcissism. He approves us without any sort of reservation. He affirms anything and believes in us no matter what it is we want to accomplish. And he's safe for everybody but he bears no resemblance to the Lion of Judah or the King of Righteousness who's coming with a sword. And then there's religious Jesus. Religious Jesus is interesting because what he does is he basically baptizes and blesses whatever Christian traditions I like. Right? So I like this kind of music or I like that we pray at this time or this way or we read this version of the Bible. Religious Jesus comes along and agrees with everything that I think Christianity should be. For 1,800 years, they were doing it wrong until in Europe, they started writing hymns and playing on organs. And when organs and hymns showed up, worship finally got right. And religious Jesus comes along and blesses that idea. 
right? Or, or conversely, we finally got rid of hymns and organs so that we can now worship properly in spirit and in truth. So we've got drums and electric guitars and we're free to express Jesus in a whole bunch of different ways. And religious Jesus comes along and affirms that my way of doing Christianity is the right way. We love religious Jesus because he just tells us that whatever we do in our religious practice is the right thing. But these are all false Jesuses. They're not the Jesus of Scripture. And the danger of a false gospel is worshiping a false god. And we end up with false functional saviors, which I'm going to talk about in a later message. But we've got to get to the punchline here. What is the true gospel? And I can't do a whole sermon on false gospels without putting forth the true gospel that Paul would put forth in many places in Scripture. And the true gospel is this. We're born under the wrath of God because of our sin. And God, he could not be unjust in allowing sin to go unpunished. Nor could God be unloving because God is love by offering no mercy to his creation. And so at the right time, God came into our world in the form of his son in order to live a perfect, sinless life that was impossible for us. And then, to accomplish God's perfect love and perfect justice on the cross, to die for our sins. And his resurrection from the dead, he proved that that promise of God could be trusted and that death was defeated. And the gift that God offers us is to repent And that just means that we agree with him that we are sinners and that we desire and turn away from our sin. And we trust God to forgive our sins, not because we can do anything to cover them up or pay them back or fix them, but because Jesus has already done everything on the cross. And God will give us the gift of his Holy Spirit right now in order to set us free from the bondage of that sin and as a seal for our eternal life, and to help us, and to teach us, and to coach us, and to transform us more and more into the image of his Son, by giving us in our hearts the desire to set aside sinful actions and false hopes of this world, and instead gives us a desire and an affection for the things of God, and for putting on a new righteousness and a hope that's in Jesus Christ alone. You can believe that gospel right now today. That is the gospel of the Bible. That is the gospel of Scripture. That is the Jesus who came. And you can receive real forgiveness and real freedom. It's available to everyone. You don't have to do anything to earn it. That's the gospel that the Galatians had lost. Somebody had come in and said, that gospel that Paul, the Apostle Paul, taught you, about how God has accomplished his love and justice on the cross and Jesus is enough... No, that's not enough. You've got to add some more stuff to that. Or maybe you've got a different gospel. Maybe you've had the gospel that, yeah, I, I understand that there's God and that there's Jesus, but I don't really have to repent or do anything because God just is going to take me anyway. Neither one of those things are the gospel. This is the gospel. God loves you, and he has accomplished what he needs to to punish sin and to set you free from it but you have to repent and accept the gift that he's offering. So be aware and beware of false gospels. They will not save you. And don't let any person or even an angel tell you anything different than the real gospel as it's taught in Scripture, as I've just sort of summarized there. 
know for yourselves the true gospel and where it comes from and why it's true and be able to speak it in many different ways into many different circumstances. The gospel is something we never leave behind, but that we trust in and apply every single day of our lives. Know how the perfect justice and love of God is accomplished on the cross and is relevant in every situation of your life and is the only thing that saves and justifies you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that it is a a beacon and a light and that we have to do nothing more than simply open it up and your truth is there. Your gospel is there. Father, protect us. Protect this church. Protect every heart here this morning that we would not be trapped into following a false gospel or believing in an imaginary Jesus that we invented because we like him a little better. Make us faithful to the Jesus of Scripture, the Jesus who sits at your right hand right now, interceding on our behalf, who is ready and able to save those who would call on him. And Father, if there's any here that need to make that call, or even just need to confess that you know, they've been slowly transforming Jesus into something that they like a little better, Father, hear those prayers and hear those confessions as people call out to you for the real gospel, the real Jesus, the real transformation that takes place in their life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.